thank you so much for tuning into another great episode of We Can Fight Like Cats If We Have To. So in the ring today, you've got the three of us, which would be Alon, Natasha, and myself, Sally. But we have another fighter in the ring today. Her name is Nikki. Nikki, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for inviting me. So Nikki is our special guest today. Nikki has a very special experience and reached out to me because she wanted to share her experience. So Nikki is born in Nova Scotia. Her mom was from Miramichi, part Mi'kmaq, part, part French. And her father is originally from Northern India, correct? Yes. I did not mess that up. That, that's good. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, now, your experience was quite particular. You reached out to me because we've had a couple of very interesting conversations about the non-white, white, non-white girls, I guess, is the real conversation that we have, where we have either no idea what ethnicity we are and it doesn't matter, or we think at one point we're white and we are made very clear that we're not but you have kind of like a back gateway that I didn't have which is your mother was actually somewhat part of the community being a French Canadian yeah so your experience even went slightly above and beyond mine in terms of like being accepted and integration um and and being able to kind of become part of the community here in New Brunswick correct that's pretty accurate yeah so if that is the assumption that, you know, you were welcomed because of your mother and so on and so forth. Why did this podcast stand up to you and why did you approach us? Because as a person of color who is mostly white passing, I hear everything. And while a lot of people like to say today that, you know, we're more open in, in our community for other races and whatever it's the otherness of other people is very apparent and what I mean by that is when people think that you're not different than them they say the things that are really on their mind so I hear a lot of things that are completely completely unacceptable to me as a person of color that is really interesting so can you give some examples of this oh so probably the best example would be just having a conversation you know, people not really thinking about the fact that I'm a person of color and then going on about how immigrants are coming in and stealing all our jobs, for example. This is something I hear all the time. And it's like people forget that I'm an immigrant or at least the child of an immigrant. So what they say when they're hating towards those kinds of people, they're hating towards me and they're hating towards my family. And uh, so that, that kind of thing affects me every single day. Do you bring that up to them? Of course. And what do they say? They say, they say, oh, well, we don't mean you. We mean all the other people. And that's where that, that, that phrase, you know, otherness comes from. Natasha, you have a little smirk going on there. <laughs> Want to share your thoughts? Sorry, I was muted. No, no, I was, I was just, uh, couldn't hold it back, but no, please, please go ahead. No, we'll share what you're thinking. It's a conversation. Well, not surprised at all. It's, 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 it, this is not a shocker and, you know, thank you for, you know, coming out and, and saying it. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's pervasive. What is the worst thing you've ever been told and then told? No, no. Well, you're an exception. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Of the laugh. Everything. Um, <laughs> that's everything. something that happens all the time. Um, I've heard, and I I hate saying these things again because it's so disgusting. But I've heard, oh well, you know, they come in, they buy all our houses, they uh, live fifteen people in a house, and then they um buy the next house and keep having babies and taking over our whole country and you know like those kinds of phrases and it's so gross to me because it's like you know I understand why 
people do those things, um, like immigrants coming here and doing that, because my family did that. And that's how that's how they saved themselves from what they were leaving, you know, because even now, Canadians are in a situation where they can't they can't afford to live one family per house anymore. You know, and um, so rent prices are going up, mortgage costs are going up, people are having to make changes. And people from India, for example, they've already been doing that because that's what they had to do to survive. So people are, are like, um, Canadians are seeing it as being sneaky or tricky, but really what it is is survival. So I'm hearing things like that a lot. Alon, you had a little look on your face a few seconds ago. What was going through your mind? I don't know if it's a look. Uh, I mean, I mean, first off, thank you for 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 joining us and uh, and 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 exposing this. I mean, yeah, it's not a shock, but I mean, it's it's one of those things that I've heard myself um, in in various circles, um, you know, and and I find it, you know, interesting in in an environment like the Maritimes or even, you know, the greater Moncton area. Um, you know, you give the example of people saying, well, they live, you know, 15 to a house and they buy other houses. Yeah, that's called hustling and grinding. That's what it's called. That's called you sacrificing for the bigger good. And I, and I think the problem is, is that when you have white privilege, you don't know what that's like. Um, and quite frankly, you know what? The businesses and the houses are here. If you want to buy these businesses and houses, you're more than welcome to go ahead and go to the bank and apply for loans and grants and buy these houses and businesses. But if you're not gonna do that, you can't complain about other people coming in and doing what they wanna do. Um, Same when it comes to jobs. The jobs are here just because your son or daughter thinks they're too good now to work at Tim Hortons or to work you know, in, 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 in any retail spot. You know, Don't be mad because immigrants come here and hustle and go ahead and do what they need to do to survive and move up the ranks. Like that's, that's the whole point of being in, you know, North America. That's supposed to be, at least on, you know, on the American side, the American dream, right? You come here, you work hard, you start off on the bottom level, and you work your way up. And, and, and I just find that, you know, people who exercise themselves in white privilege and in the systemic system seem to forget that. When you have generational wealth, you forget that, right? Because yeah, now you're not working wealth. for it. You yeah. know, it's you're just stepping into it. I would say it's not even just generation generational wealth is an absolute thing because you know while other people were not allowed to work or were slaves or were killed or all of those things they could they could build up the generational wealth but um even beyond that um it's about having access to services in the system and i think we've talked about that uh free services public services medicare uh, we get a very different level of service. Even approvals uh, for mortgages. Just uh, approvals for mortgages. Even going to businesses, um, you get different prices, different services. And I'm not, again, going to say everybody does it, but it happens consistently and often to the point yes, that absolutely. you don't know if you're even going to get a service if you apply for one. So you have to sort of really be ready to take care of yourself and um, this is something I think we all know as, as racialized people and, you know, cultural minorities that we are not going to get the breaks that, uh, people who are white, um, and who are not immigrants get. So we have to be a lot more sturdier, a lot more resilient and have a lot more backup plans, really. We also have to suck up our dignity and have a lot less humility, like the amount of educated people having to just suck it up and take you know, quote unquote, lesser jobs. They're not lesser jobs. A job is a job. You're supporting your family. Okay. I get it. But a person doesn't go to medical school to become a cab driver or a person at Tim Hortons. And there has to be a certain level of respect for the humility that it takes to really go and just absorb that slap in the gut or punch in the gut and just go back. I mean, when I graduated university, I never received a call back, like qualified for any of the jobs that I was qualified for after university until I got legally married and changed my name like that, that says something mm-hmm. that says something, mm-hmm. or the fact that a lawn shows up to an interview and they're like, 
oh, you're black. Well, thank you, Sherlock Holmes, for discovering that uncanny truth about me that I am black. Thank you for the announcement. Oh, I didn't realize it, you know? And, and Alon, you're not the first individual to, to deal with that specific example. I get scientists applying at the for reception at the salon that we own. Actually, entrepreneurship for many immigrants is not a choice. It is not a choice. Entrepreneurship for immigrants is because of this box we've put into that we are not qualified. We don't have the quote unquote Canadian experience, even if we're born here to do the jobs necessary or, or to do the jobs fitting to our education. And so you have these, oh, I get so angry about this. And then you have like, again, the multi-generational living in homes. Frankly, I would be afraid if something were to happen to my parent and my parent was to have Alzheimer's and to no longer be able to communicate in English or French, I would be afraid to put them in a nursing home. Mm -hmm. I would want to keep them in my house and ensure that there's an open communication. There is no shame in that. There is no shame in keeping my parent at home. There is no shame in keeping my child at home until they can go out without a massive amount of debt and live within their means and teach them to the humility of living within their means rather than this luxury of white privilege that they can apply for any credit card that they want, any mortgage that they want, any loan that they want, and they get it right away, almost little to no questions asked, especially the linguistic minority. And I went there. <laughs> Sorry, rant over. <laughs> Sorry, Alon, I like exploded with that one. That's fine. That's fine. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. That that feeling of rage that you have right there, Sally, I feel that every single day of my life. And I get so frustrated. And, uh, you know, 90% of my, um, my mom's side of the family is completely, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes. Aryan like they're white 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 and um, they don't understand why I get so frustrated or why I'm not succeeding the way that they expected me to I mean I'm the, the first one in my family to get a bachelor's degree on both sides and um, I'm not really living up to what expectations come along with six years of university education you know, um, specialization in my own field, $60,000 of student loan debt, you know, all of those things that I did that I sacrificed the time I put in did not benefit me because in this society, in this province, as things are, I'm not considered qualified despite my education. In this province. And you're educated in this, in province. this province. Yeah, let's clarify. In this well. province. You're educated I, in this province, correct? I, since kindergarten, all of my education minus two years that I was in Toronto, I was in school in New Brunswick. And employers tell me often that they'll choose somebody, obviously, who's bilingual over me because I don't speak French as my second language. I speak Punjabi as my second language. Um, and they're not okay with that. So you are bilingual, so, just not francophone. I mean, I would not call myself functionally bilingual at all. I would say I'm unilingual, but I know a lot of little bits of many languages. Um, just, you know, because partially I'm interested in linguistics. And then also because I was raised by a person of, from India. So <laughs> kind of, it's, it's sort of weird. I never really had the focus to fully become bilingual in any language. I'm going to ask you a, a intimate question and please stop <clears throat> me if it's not appropriate um, and you don't want to talk about it. Um, but my condolences on losing your mother, first you. and foremost. Um, second, the, the reason why I'm saying it's intimate, it is regarding your mother. So your mother was half Mi'kmaq, half French Canadian. Yeah. And you say your relatives are all blonde hair, blue eyes, but I've met your mother. And from what I remember, she did not have blonde hair, blue eyes. She actually could have passed for Mi'kmaq, if I remember correctly. She um, could. Yeah. How, how did she deal or how early did you start dealing with discrimination? Because she was a single mother, correct? Um, mother, she from, was a single mother from portion. when I was, 
when I was 15, my parents got divorced. So that's when, um, yeah, that's when things kind of changed. But but she remained here and your father moved away, correct? That's right. Yeah. So she raised you kind of in your peak adolescent developmental intellectual Absolutely. years, I guess. Um, yes. Did you deal with that kind of discrimination at that age? And how did your mother contribute to strengthening you? And if she had a few things that you could advise her to do differently, how would you have advised her to do differently now that you're also a parent and that you are kind of in your shoes as you are now? So starting off, uh, the first time I remembered being discriminated against for how I looked, was when I was six and I was in the playground at school and this is in Miramichi and um, there was there's another kind of divisive situation between the you know white people and then the um, indigenous people in that area as well because there's a lot of reserves in that space and there's long-standing um, kind of rivalries between those two communities. Mm-hmm. So in going to school in Miramichi at six years old, you know, they, children don't know the difference between Indian and indigenous, mm-hmm. especially in the nineties. That was not something people really understood at all. So, um, and for our listeners who are not aware, because this is not, you know, we're not shaming right now. We know our education in this province is locking. India is a country in Asia. And Indians come usually from India. And if you refer to an indigenous person nowadays as an Indian, it is considered not only incorrect, but somewhat derogatory. So I am not explaining this to shame anybody. I am explaining it for the listeners who are simply not aware. Sorry to cut you off, Nikki, but I like to make sure that everyone is aware of what we are talking about because all of our listeners are not necessarily people of color. That's true. And it's a conversation I have daily Anytime I explain to someone I'm Indian, they automatically assume that I mean that I'm Indigenous because there is a large um, Indigenous community close by um, and years of just the same story happening. But anyway, the first time that I remember that kind of thing happening, and again, it's not me shaming them or anything about them as like the indigenous community, people would come up to me, pull my hair, call me, you know, racial slurs for indigenous, things like that, um, shove me. So there is racism against indigenous people, contrary to Blaine Higgs's allegation that we don't have a problem. Absolutely. (laughs) There 1000% is, especially if you pass for indigenous and you aren't, you see it a lot more. Um, and I say I'm not, but you know, it's, I'm, it's one of those weird things. I can't really explain it well. And <laughs> well, you don't have um, your legal status as an indigenous. I don't know. You, know, you don't, you I don't carry on that. Status. I don't, I don't qualify for status. <clears throat> My mother didn't, um, didn't, um, how Apply do I say that? Hers. No, you're sort of born with it and you can renounce it. And that's sort of what happened in my family's okay. case. They just didn't pursue it. So I, I don't consider myself technically indigenous, even though I'm partially. It's, it's kind of one of those weird situations that. More genetic, less cultural. Right, exactly. Culturally, I identify as kind of mixed race, I guess is the only really way to explain it. But yeah, starting at six, is when things like that started happening, happened throughout my entire life. My mother kind of, she would see me struggling sometimes because I went to school with, you know, very white kids, blonde hair, blue eyes. And I always wanted to look like that because growing up, I was the only one I knew who looked like me other than my dad. Nobody wants to look like their dad when they're seven. So (laughs) (laughs) when they're a girl, especially (laughs) yeah so he was the only other person I ever knew who looked anything like me so um 
I was always like, you know, I wish I had blue eyes. I wish my skin was lighter. I wish I didn't have to go outside in the sun and get so dark, you know, things like that. And of course, my my dad's side of the family. And I, I don't know how much you guys know about Indian culture, especially the way that classism works over there. But a little bit, um, you know, the, the public does the higher, not probably, but probably mm-hmm. not. But the higher the higher your classes, usually the lighter skin you have. Yeah. Um, usually due to skin bleach, you can afford it. Skin, well, not, Northern India is a little bit different because they tend to be lighter skin there anyway. But also because you don't spend time outside working. Mm -hmm. So you don't have the darker skin. So um, my dad's family would see me and say, oh, your skin is so light and so beautiful. You're so fair. You look so rich, you know, those kinds of things. Um, And to them, that was that was kind of beauty. Yeah. So but then I would be here and people would say, oh, your skin is so dark. You have such beautiful dark skin. You're so brown. If my friends drew pictures of me, they colored me black or they colored me brown. And I'm glad they called you beautiful. I did not get that one. (laughs) Well, well, I got a lot of names, just not beautiful or attributes or adjective to describe my skin. Again, you have to remember that I am, I am, white passing most of the time so like 90% of the year this like I'm fairly fair but as soon as I get in the sun I'm brown you know and the thing about people around here is they love brown skin on themselves but not other people (laughs) do you know what I mean so they see my skin color and they say oh your skin is so nice I wish my skin was that color I was like yeah (laughs) do you though I mean, uh, maybe temporarily over the summertime, you would be comfortable with that. But the rest of the year, it causes me more trouble than anything else. And it's so sad that that's a a reality to life. But so things that I would, I would say my mom did really well, is constantly reminding me that despite me not matching the standards of beauty in this area, that I was beautiful. And that my brown eyes were the most beautiful eyes she'd ever seen. And my brown skin glowed in the sun. And people were wanting my beautiful color because it was a beautiful color. And remi- so, and that's one thing when it came to, especially I also had weight issues when I was young and I still do. Um, it was always that kind of thing. Like she always told me, you know, you're beautiful, you're curvy, you're glowy you know people will see you and they recognize you because you look so different and it's a good thing and uh now recently my son is six and he's going through similar things so he says to me all the time mom I hate my brown eyes I wish I had blue eyes like all my friends and I say brown is the most beautiful color for eyes they're the most beautiful eyes brown eyes are the best eyes because I want him to have that same feeling that I had, you know, without, without that feeling of, I'm never going to be as beautiful as everybody else around me, because I'm never going to have blue eyes. Um, I hope that, you know, instilling that feeling that, you know, brown eyes are the best eyes, that that's something <laughs> that can help him through the future. I know. And you know what, like, maybe it's, it's not so great for family members who have blue eyes and I'm saying oh your brown eyes are better than everybody else's but in where we are it's just it's important for him to feel that way you have to arm your child with confidence you have to arm your child with exactly like I I firmly believe in what you are doing and I do the same with my children look at your beautiful curls oh here comes my big brown talking about their big brown eyes you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting that you you comment on the fact that your mother, you know, noticed and praised you for your appreciation. And I think, you know, Natasha can relate on a level where she is raising two beautiful oh, wow. girls here. So many I was God. oh yeah. my God. Check, check, check. Um, the the same thing that you said the first time you heard it was in the playground. Same thing with my daughter. Um, it was coming home crying from preschool. And saying this kid said, you can't sit with us because you're not like us and doesn't know why. She doesn't know why, because at that age, she was white passing as well. So mm-hmm. as with children, as you get older, you get darker. So she was lighter and she had lighter hair. 
but this kid was obviously it was his mom who was like a bigot and i'm going to say that very openly um and she was disgustingly a daycare teacher um oh. yeah exactly she was one of them and there were five of them and she was the the one who was a bigot and the other four were not but because of white complicity in this province the moment i would say i have concerns about this woman it would be instantly Oh no, she could never do that. You must Bacon. be mistaken. <laughs> the great teacher. I'm even saying her name. I don't give a crap. This woman, I mean, I made complaint after complaint. Her name's Karen? Uh, no, no, not Karen. Oh. <laughs> not Kara. So, um, Kara, still pretty darn close to Karen. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, no, worse than a Karen, because I think um, she was in a position where she, she could abuse that privilege that she had they like all are she could between between kids and every time i would look into this didn't happen once it happened repeatedly and every time my daughter would report this kid was was excluding her and saying you're not like us and you're not one of us and she was uh you know the only um ethnocultural minority in that that preschool at that time um when I would look into it, it would be his mom who was the teacher that day. So it mm. was not a coincidence. She was she was facilitating that. So um, yeah. the time she heard it was at that age. And then again, this blue eyed thing that you mentioned, she was, um, this was a couple of years later, public school again, coming home crying. What's the problem? Uh, the girl said, I can't play with them because I don't have blue eyes. I said, are you fucking serious? I mean, my, that's literally, you know, at that point, curse words come out and I'm like, are you fucking serious? This is 2012. How is this possible? And, mm. you know, but it is possible and it does happen. And uh, she said, how can I get blue eyes? This poor kid is now searching online how to get blue eyes. And that's when I was like, no, 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 no. This is, this is not happening. And then I, you know, take it to the school and they're like, um, you know, they hear the stuff from the parents. Now I have to say there is a difference between teachers and kids. Teachers made my children feel very good about themselves lots of positive reinforcement out of 10 teachers there would be one who would not be like that so in the 2010s they definitely have you know a good bunch of people who who did sort of try to give them that confidence because they were very aware that that was not happening in the student body they were very aware what's happening in the community but they could not address it because they're not supposed to address it because guess what they cannot use the word racism in schools so they're only supposed to use happy words like diversity and inclusion. And I think Sally and I have talked about that. Um, <laughs> I just well, came up asked. I think it's, you, oh, go ahead. How do, it? how do you address racism? Oh, we don't use that word. It's not a happy word. It doesn't exist. Yeah, it's not a happy. <laughs> I hate that phrase so much. Racism doesn't exist, please. Look, that, is, that is up there with like the racism that? with white people, uh, racism against white people. It's right up there. Oh my gosh. Um, and, and these are things I hear all the time too. And it just makes me sick to my stomach. Alon, you've also raised your young man here. He is now a young man. You've done a pretty darn good job. Would you say you faced similar challenges to raising girls here or different? I, I'm guessing that they probably treated your son as a young man quite early in terms of like aggressive behavior towards him? Yeah, yeah, teachers and day, like, you know, teachers and daycare workers, you know, were hit or miss. Um, sometimes they had really good ones and sometimes you just have those individuals who have no business being around children. Exactly. Like point blank, right? Um, so definitely had, you know, to butt heads with, with daycare providers and teachers in elementary school. Um, High school was a lot harder than I expected it to be um, for him. Now, mind you, he was older at that point, so he could take care of himself for the most part. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've had to, you know, to, to, to check teachers and check principals and, and do all of that, right? Because, you know, and, and the thing is, and, and, you know, he's much lighter than me. So it wasn't like, you know, he's got, you know, the big brown curls and the big brown eyes and he's, you know, he's Drake basically. And it's like, you know, it's like he should be having these issues. Um, and yet, and still it, it really didn't matter. I remember we were, he was in a school in, uh, in Lower Coverdale and, and, and I think, you know, I think he was in high school at this point. And I was coaching um, with the GMFA and the kid 
this kid called him a nigger in school for whatever the fucking reason. And the thing was, I was coaching the kid. Where's the bats? They were on the same team, and I was coaching the kid. And I, I remember he told me the story, and I was like, you know what? You know, it, we'll deal with it. This is how you deal with it, whatever. And I remember going to a Christmas service at the church in Lower Coverdale, a little Baptist church on the way down to Hillsboro. And him and his dad were at the front door. And uh, they want to give me this look like I should talk to them or I should know they're sorry. Or, and I was like, no, like, fuck you. Like, you should, kn- you should know better. Like, you should know better. Your kids should have known better. You if should say sorry. Was- <laughs> Here's the thing. If your, kid, if your kid's coming out of his face with that word, he clearly heard it from someone. Exactly. So whether it was you or the uncle or the grandfather or the grandmother, someone said it. And someone was talking shit for this kid, this 13, 14 year old kid to come out of his face to say to another kid, a racial slur and think it was okay. Knowing full well, your football coach is black. Like, how do you do this? So clearly I must have, so here's what I think has happened. I think that I must have done something on the field with the kid that he didn't like. And so he got in the car, got home. And so that nigger this and that nigger that. And so he wanted to go ahead knowing Zach is my son and fucking say it to him. Yeah. That's what happened. So it's like, you know, I, I, I you know, when it comes to kids, I think I, I'm quite sure that, you know, girls have it a lot harder than, than boys do, even though as, as brown girls get older, white boys seem to change their tone. Um, but... <laughs> It, it, you know, it, it, I think it's probably, listen, real talk. That's real it's talk. It's actually I, dangerous, though, for exotic <laughs> girls. Oh, my that's God. Just, that's just real talk here. Like, white boys can say what the fuck they want, but as soon as a brown girl gets old enough, things change. All of a sudden, um, you know, and uh, until, the, until the parents say something or their friends say something, then it's an issue. Um, you know, but it's, it's, I, I'm sure it's much harder raising girls than his boys in, in, in any respect. Um, but I feel like raising Zach was challenging, but I did have the advantage that he was a boy. Um, and so at least, you know, the male societal privilege was there to a point. Um, but yet still as a young black man, it, you know, it, it, that, that really didn't weigh in too much. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I have had to tell him, like, you know what, you may be light and you may be pretty, but you're still black. You know, you got to understand that. Like, yes, your mom is white, but you're still, a, you're going to be seen as a black man. And I had to tell, I remember first time telling him that at like seven years old, you know, that you got to understand that you are a young black man. Like, that's what you are. That's how people see you. You know, just because you know, you know, that you're half doesn't mean that people see that or know that. They don't know. I'm Scottish. Or even care. Yeah, or even care. But no one knows that looking at me. They don't give a shit. They see a tall black man. That's all they see. The DNA doesn't matter. And I think, and I think you know, uh, I think you know, people probably need to understand that that you know, we all are you know, mixed race in one way or another. Um, and you got to understand that on the surface, no one gives a shit. No one's looking at your DNA card. No one cares. You know what I mean? Like on the surface, that's all they see, and that's all they're going to react to. So you may be half white, you may be half indigenous, you may be half a lot of things. Um, but, you know, to, you know, to a white person in public in a day to day, what they see on the outside is what they react to. Um, and I and I myself had to come to grips with that, you know, in my teenage years, like I knew what my lineage was. And I got frustrated, like, how come no one, you know, respects that? But the fact is, they don't care. No one cares to know. Um, and so, yeah, you know, being a minority and being, you know, a visible minority, you do have to make those adjustments and, and absorb a lot, but raising kids is tricky with it, but I think it, it makes them stronger people. Like, yes, you're introducing a lot of topics early on in their life, but it's better to prepare them early Thank you. and let them know what the deal is than them getting hurt, getting their feelings hurt when they get older. And I say, and you know what? I see a lot of, some parents do that. Some parents want to go ahead and show to their kids and put them in a bubble and you know they may be in an all-white neighborhood going to an all-white school and blah 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 and then they get out in the real world and they get the little feelings hurt um you know what i mean it's better to know and you know to have reinforcement at home like we're all saying and you know be encouraged and know the truth 
So as you get older, you're strong enough, you can absorb it, you can deal with it, and you can succeed. Because um, there are a lot of kids that don't have that advantage, and their parents did them a disservice. It may have been cute when they were younger, but as adults, they don't know how to handle it. And, you know, so it causes issues. But, um, yeah, I can definitely relate to everything that you're saying. It's definitely something that's real here in the Maritimes. Um, there are a lot of biracial kids that are coming of age now um, that my son's generation and the next generation. And, you know, it's uh, Moncton needs to adjust. New Brunswick needs to adjust. The Maritimes need to adjust. Um, you know, curriculum needs to change, teachers and teaching, you know, practices need to change, um, you know, uh, as far as sensitivity training and all that, we're beyond that. It just takes common fucking sense and common respect. Fuck the sensitivity training shit. Just have respect, um, you know, just be, you know, a decent human being, and that's all that you need to do, um, you know, but, but there are a lot of things that do need to change because, like I said, we do have a generation um, of kids that are biracial that are here in the province that are living life and we have immigrants coming over with their their children staying and, and, and growing up so um this is not going to go anywhere anytime soon and i really wish that the powers that be here in new brunswick would realize that and start making social and uh institutional changes to, to show that yes. Thank you. <laughs> sorry i went off a little bit i'll, I'll be quiet now no i love it <laughs> it's, it's funny that you say that too because um maybe like three or four months ago I was standing outside my apartment I was living um off of Elmwood Drive and I heard a commotion I was like what's going on I go outside and there's this drunk white guy walking down the street screaming at the top of his lungs this guy he hit me with his car he didn't he didn't but that's what the guy was saying and the driver was this tall skinny black guy like really nice guy I actually know him but I didn't realize I knew him at the time but so he's uh he's saying this guy hit me with his car and uh freaking out call the police somebody call the police on this and start saying that word I'm not gonna say it because I don't feel comfortable doing that but um he's screaming it in the middle of the street the neighbors are all outside like what's going on um the guy's got his little six-year-old in the car with him and uh so this poor little kid is seeing this disgusting display and um police come and they say oh you know there's nothing we can do he didn't do anything illegal he's just a bigot and go on with your day um a couple of weeks later I talked to the guy because we were standing at the bus stop uh, his kid went to school with my kid he ended up moving after this situation happened but he told me what happened was this kid was playing outside in his yard this guy walked past and started harassing the kid and the kid went inside the house and said dad this guy called me the n-word the guy comes out and starts chasing the guy down the street to tell him off for harassing his kid and then the white guy calls the police on him and says that he hit him with his car when he did it. And nothing happened to the guy who started this whole thing by harassing a six-year-old in his own yard. Mm -hmm. So like, those are the kinds of things that are happening around here that is so sick and it's messing things up so early for these children. It's just, oof, it's just gross. I've heard that situation more than once. Um, about a year ago, a friend of mine, um, their son was outside taking their uh, new puppy for his pee. Yes. And yeah. Uh, yeah, same thing. This little kid, he's biracial. He was also six. Man mm -hmm. comes up to him, starts screaming at him, calls mm -hmm. him a little, yeah. I'm not going to say that word. And mm -hmm. um, his father comes out, like the kid is crying and screaming. The father comes out and he's like, what are you doing? Like, he's six years old. Like, what is your problem? He's on our property. The dog is out peeing on mm -hmm. my property. Like, what is your problem? And this is a common thing. And why the RCMP? Like, I'm sorry. They're inciting violence. 
Exactly. Mm -hmm. They are inciting violence. This is hate rhetoric and their agenda is to cause physical, financial and social harm to the individual who is a minority. They are weaponizing the society and they are weaponizing the system. And they know damn well that even if the police doesn't do anything about you know, what, or even society or the police don't hurt the person that they want to hurt, that they're not going to get any reprimand for it. Exactly. And this is not okay. Like we're, we deal with this. This is like the go-to white person weapon in New Brunswick, go-to pro white person weapon. Like Natasha and I are in this situation right now where like someone is literally weaponizing um, the, the like society against us because of our, you know, our ethnic status claiming at the same time in this case, and this is, this is the new white trend new claiming white. that you will divide within yes. the people of color and choose which ones are worth support and which ones are not worth support, which is always the case, which is always, always been. and like we're in this situation right now with you know someone that we worked with who stole some material from us so it's like we called her out for stealing material and she's going off pretending that this is all some other problem of something else and we did it privately but she's going and attacking us publicly and this is actually inciting violence against us and this happens all the time when when clinton and i had issues at the salon the 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 mobbing that they tried to do the mobbing was founded on the fact that we were people of color that he was a black man that i was a middle eastern arab north african muslim descent woman you know we're gonna weaponize this we are going to make sure to burn or um what is the word we're gonna lynch these mofos we're gonna lynch these mofos because the police is gonna do nothing about it we keep trying to talk about and i was listening to cbc this morning and they have um kayla i think brido is her name she is a psychologist who specializes in um racial racialized trauma and in brunswick this is in moncton i just found out about her myself a few weeks ago she is a black woman she is a therapist and she specializes in trauma um that people have based on racialized situations and racism and she was this i had to like literally they were interviewing this woman on the radio and i'm literally walking laps in my house going from one room in another trying to like process what she's saying because she's identifying she's she's repeating what i already know which is this behavior this trigger this ptsd this da 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 is always blamed on what we call as microaggressions and she's like but they're not microaggressions at all they are in fact acts of violence and you know we've we've accepted the term microaggressions as a as a kind of popular term and a social norm minimizing i'm sure you've witnessed it too nick nikki like we've all witnessed it where you know they're like throwing us under the bus because of our ethnicity because of our religious background because of our visual you know minority status and i i believe i had a conversation with you where you're like why are you where you said to someone you were telling me about it where you said like why are you attacking this person like i can see what you're doing and they're like well no they're not like you and you're like yes they are and it's just, it, it drives me crazy because we are people. We are people who are just trying to live. We are people who are just trying to raise our children. We are people who are just trying to, you know, contribute to our society and humanity and improve everybody's greater being. And yet we have these populations that keep coming in and choosing which of us and, and divide us as a result. Like, you may, you no, probably didn't realize it then and I'm really appreciative that you realize now that that tactic of saying well no you're an exception was them choosing to put you on a higher pedestal even though you're still not on their level to kind of get mm-hmm. more leverage against more people of color that's a colonial tactic yes. I pointed that out that's a standard colonial tactic that has been used historically when they would go into the colonies is is pick minorities usually the compliant ones who would sell out other minorities and friend 
and give them information. The exact same garbage stuff is happening here, and it's happening now in real time. And it's here's it's always that person. Absolutely. Here's what I've been hearing a lot recently: is, oh, you're okay because you're Indian, but all of these insert whatever race here are not okay because they're trying to take over our country. And typically their problem the problem that I'm I'm hearing the most of, because again, they people around here don't other me as much as others, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um well, you have the white mom pass. I have the white mom, I have the yeah, I have the grew up in this community, everybody knows me already because I'm you know part of the furniture basically. Mm-hmm. But That's still uh, white mom pass, because I grew up here and I'm still yes. It was made infinitely yeah. clear. The white at a very young age. It's a big advantage for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, that's not something I really ever thought about, but you're right. That <laughs> probably is. <laughs> probably is a big part of it. But I do hear these things. And the 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 minority group that they're kind of right now looking at the most is um like Middle Eastern yes. oh, yeah. Muslims, like anybody would- from that. I was going to say that because I think I think it's important. I mean, our core is people of color, but I think it's very important to to bring up, and I always do, which probably makes people uncomfortable, that the intersection with race, with your religious background, and mm-hmm. whether or not you practice. And my kids uh, were seriously confused because one day they just came home and asked me, "Do people not like us because we're brown or because we're Muslim?" And I said. Honestly, I can't tell you which one it is, you know, which day, and it depends on the person. So they said, so we're basically screwed. I said, yes, basically, um, you know, and I was actually grateful when this uh, Trump election happened in 2015, because for the first time, it became part of the conversation. Before that, it was racism is over. Obama was elected. We're not racist anymore. And yeah. when that happened, well, it's like Rimazar shit, right? Exactly. At least now it's being discussed. It's bad because it it gave like validity to all far right movements. Uh, but at the same time, when something is hidden, then you cannot tackle it. And when it is out in the open, like this gentleman you were talking about, this unfortunate gentleman uh, you were talking about who was targeted by this racist guy on your street, at least, uh, and, you know, thank God you were there. Who knows if somebody else was there, they would have said something. But often, and I think in the case of women and children, they cannot be that openly aggressive. So we get a lot of back talk that is going on behind our backs that nobody tells us about. Same with mm-hmm. children. They always sense something is happening. Like my kid would keep coming home from her middle school and saying, I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel safe the way I did in elementary school. And I was like, and she said, I don't know why, because nobody's saying anything to me. Nobody says mm-hmm. anything. They're very careful with the racial slurs. You know, it's usually when, as Alon mentioned, when they're pissed off and they need to you know, but most of the time they're careful because they know you're being part of the system, know exactly what lines you cannot cross and what exactly. you can do and get away with it. So it's very strategic. I don't think this is, you know, ignorance and stupidity um, when you have people who are part of the system. Sure, there it's are not. Yeah, no, it's not. It's it's 100 percent calculated. And I can tell you this as a person who lives on both sides of the line that I see it all and it's intentional. There are very well-educated people. There are very uneducated people, but they're all hateful. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing, there's nothing that is, Oh, we don't realize anymore that it's wrong. No, they 100% know and they don't care. Mm-hmm. And that is the absolute difference between, you know, a little kid not knowing the difference because their parents tell them, exactly. you know, this is what you should believe. And a 15 year old even, or a 20 year old or a 40 year old or a 60 year old, after a certain point, you have to take responsibility for your own beliefs and your own um, behavior towards those beliefs. But it's what you're saying too. Um, 
when it comes to religion versus physical appearance, because my family is Sikh, Sikhs are known for being peaceful. They're known for being compliant. They're, you know, they're supposedly very loving. They're supposedly, like, there's a lot of very positive attributes to being Sikh, although we're very physically obvious with turbans and beards and things like that. Um, So there's less kind of hatred towards our culture as a whole, but it's still other than, than, um, so. And they're confused with Muslims, right? They assume that uh, anybody with a turban on their head. They attack. They They assume turban on their head is Muslim. Like there was, there was, I've heard people say that Jagmeet Singh is Muslim and I'm like, no, no, he's not. Like, (laughs) This white yeah. woman jumped at him literally and started like she was almost attacking him in the middle of his speech and saying, you're going to bring Sharia law to this country. First of all, this is a ridiculous fantasy. How stupid do you have to, be to actually think that? And uh, yeah, he's going to rewrite the Constitution. That's sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was. And, and kudos to him. He did not say a lot of people knee jerk response because I've seen people who are Indian or who are South Asian and different, you know, different, um, different with different religious backgrounds, they'll immediately say I'm not Muslim when they deal with um, the, you know, somebody being um, aggressive towards them. He did not say yeah. that. Obviously, he said, I, I love he, you. He was too nice. He said, Honestly, I love you. I, I but love that's him. what she means by I, Sikh culture is that they're so yeah. peaceful. And they're yeah. so like culturally embedded in a culture of love. It's a culture of love and respect. Yeah. Respect, respect to elders, respect to um, other groups of people, respect to basically everyone. I mean, there's still a lot of disrespect and there's still a lot of racism, but it's behind closed doors and it's not something that people put out in the world. Not to like, it's not, not to say that Indian people do not have any racism. They absolutely do. Lots of color. tons of colorism like absolutely color is like how pretty you are basically right exactly it's more class-based rather than and again it's not and it it comes down to it comes down to privilege again because you know somebody who's poor doesn't have the privilege to go out and buy makeup doesn't have the privilege to have all the the jewelry and the, the beautiful saris or dresses or clothing or whatever it is that is the the standard of beauty at that time. And so it's it's different in that way. But so when when people who understand there's a difference between a, a Sikh and a Muslim, for example, are fighting it out I guess they they don't understand always that the color like skin is different I don't know it's kind of (laughs) I don't know how how to explain what I'm trying to say (laughs) but we've had episodes on shadism so and and we'll we can further have an elaborate uh one maybe in the future where we can invite you to discuss specifically shadism um, and explain it because it is a real live thing like Mm -hmm. if me and Alon were in the same culture well, I would be considered beautiful and Alon would be just, you know, in Egyptian culture specifically, like they'd be like, Alon, you need to work on that complexion. Personally, I think Alon is beautiful mm-hmm. in a non-weird way. I, you're like my brother. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's it's very, and it, it's also used to discredit the, the, the lighter skin experience of racism. Like it was a real shock to some of the individuals that I have spoken to who are either black or very visibly dark. The violence and experience that I had growing up as a child and what I, I endured, it was actually shocking to them when my story came out. I was actually told like, no, no, like you're light. There's no way you really had it that bad. And then they see what I've been through. They read my story. They hear me talking about it. Like I've had incredibly dark black men, like 
as I'm describing the physical assaults cringe in their chairs and kind of lean back, like in the physical pain that I am describing to them of my assaults. So it's, it, and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't realize that you really were subjected to that when you said that. And it, you know, and it's a mistake and we all make that mistakes and we are all human. And that's the thing, like going back to Alon's point about the gentleman whose son, gentleman, that man whose son said that derogatory comment to your son, Alon, you know, they shouldn't, they shouldn't just look at you like you should know their story. No, man, no. Get your ass out of that spot, walk up to them publicly and say, what I did was wrong. I will ensure that I will not do it again. I respect you for coming forward and saying I caused you harm. And I apologize and I am sorry that I put you in a position where you had to feel that way and that you had to make me realize how ignorant I was. That's what we're expecting out of all this. Like the movement here is not to say, oh, white people are bad. No, we have a lot of white allies. Some of us have white parents. Some of us have white loved ones. Some of us have white children. This is about communication, apologies, accountability, and change. Like, that's what I think anyway. Do, do we agree on this? Is this a point that was kind of agreed upon by all of us here? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Like, I, I, it's the accountability. I they, yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's too much of, I feel that you've disrespected me culturally or, or because of my race. And then the other person saying, well, I didn't mean it in an offensive way. That's just how I see things. Or that's I don't how care I how you raised. mean it. It's like, yeah, like just say, just say I'm sorry and mean it and don't do it again. It's, it's really not that hard. <laughs> You're at the gym and you drop a 20 pound dumbbell on my foot. I'm sure you didn't mean to break my damn toe, but I expect you to say you're sorry and be better careful next time. It's the same mm. damn thing. Sorry, I get really angry when I hear stories of people just looking at you, <laughs> pretending like yeah. you should know that they're sorry because they're not. But, yeah. um, oh, so go ahead, Natasha. I'll give you the close, the first closing no, point. No, I was just going to say, I don't think they see it as simple as saying sorry to an individual. I, I think that a lot of people see acknowledging that they have committed uh, transgression as a um, much bigger deal. Because I don't think it's it's seen as simple as if I apologize to this person for being racist, um, it that's going to be it. No, it's part of a much bigger sort of um, sort of um, I don't know thing in their head, which is if I acknowledge that I'm the transgressor here, then I am betraying this elaborately beautifully built system to designed to give me and my family and my friends an advantage at every single step along the way. So I think it's not as unconscious as the way it's constantly being portrayed. Because I think we've all heard every time we've said, oh, this person was, you know, rude to me, or this employee was rude, or whatever. It's always, uh, first, you must be mistaken. And two, they didn't mean it that way, or they had a bad day, or all of those things that we've discussed before. So and sometimes I escalates into your delusional. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that it, it's much bigger. It's a much, especially in New Brunswick, where this is a very white, homogenous province. I think they they are very comfortable because this is not people like in the GTA who come from every different part of Canada. Who are from here to quote them, and this is their home as they see it, their place, and everybody from outside is basically in their head an invader. So they're thinking we are preserving our culture our heritage our blah 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 so i think it's much bigger than that at least i think that so that's my closing point thank you natasha alon what's your closing point uh just uh, basically that things need to things need to change people individually need to wake up um you're absolutely right accountability is the most important thing, um, you know, admitting when you're wrong, admitting that you don't know and, and doing your own homework and doing your own research, um, that that's key. And just recognizing that the world is a lot bigger than your maritime bubble, you know? And, and, and again, like I said earlier, um, 
common decency and respect. Those are two things that, 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 you know, non-visible minorities and non-people of color just need to start exercising on a daily basis. You know, if you want someone to be nice to you and be kind to you and treat you decently and show you respect, then just simply do the same in return. It's not, it's not rocket science. It's not a complicated equation. Like, you know, a lot of white individuals try to make it out, especially in the media. Um, it's not complicated. It's not fucking complicated. It's that old golden rule, as, as, the, as they say. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. It's very fucking simple. Like, it, it's very simple. Um, and and, and that's, that's where it needs to start. And I think if we just, you know, um, as visual minorities, just keep going on, just keep demanding that respect. Um, you know, keep, you know, calling people out when they fuck up. Um, I, I, I think we'll get somewhere, but it's, it's a long fight. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, you know, things are far from, from, from over, you know, I know the media is not talking about a lot of things in the public like they were. Um, but the fight's not over. Things are not well, things are not okay. Um, so there's a long fight to go, but I think anyone listening to this podcast who happens to be a visible minority, just keep fighting the good fight know that you're not alone, know that your experiences are not, um, solitary ones. And uh, that you have the right to demand respect and decency from other people. Amen. Nikki, your closing points. Oh, <laughs> I didn't think of anything yet. Um, I think if you are a white passing person of color, or if you love somebody who is a person of color and you are not, um, it's your responsibility to call out the crap that you're hearing behind closed doors and to say something instead of rolling your eyes or ignoring it like I've done for the last 25 years. Like when you hear it, you need to say something because it's wrong and it needs to stop. Um, That's it. Thank you for your bravery. Thank you for coming forward. It takes balls to do what you're doing takes yeah. a lot of guts. Um, it takes a lot of guts to come forward and even admitting the mistake that, you know, I wasn't aware and now I plan to do differently. I'm really proud of you um, as another person, you know, of color, but I'm also proud of you as a person in general. Like that, that is a point of ethics and maturity that you're not born with. And, you know, um, We've had we just had an interview with Hosseini Raymond, who is he said he was 27, I think. And, and you know, he's unapologetically calling out people as well for being racist. Um, and, you know, I, I said to him, I wish I had the nerve to do what you can do at your age. I think we we all we all make that mistake. I think part of it is conditioning or fear or flat out bootlicking like it's, it's one of the three. And, you know, I'm, I'm quite optimistic that two thirds of the passive population are either afraid or just unaware of the truth and their right that this is wrong and they, uh, they have a right to speak up. Um, and only one third of that population who are silent are bootlickers, I think. And, and they fit well with the white preservers of the um, white supremacist culture. They are b both ethically not nice dare I say bad human beings. Um, but the truth is like, that is not the point that we are all coming from here today. We're all coming from here today. It's a point where we want to make a difference. And because we want to make a difference um, and we want to change the mistakes of our past and we want to change the mistakes of being passive in the past, we are coming forward today and not only are we willing to commit to change ourselves, but we're willing to commit to forgive and accept and welcome anybody willing to apologize, own up and change. And that's really the big thing. And if any of our listeners are white, you do not have a right to tell a person of color how to interpret something when they've received it a million times and they are telling you, that it is damaging to their soul. When they hear you do this or see you do this, it is damaging to their soul. You do not get to vote that your intention matters more than the pattern of behavior. And, you know, just like guys might, you know, not realize that they're making a woman uncomfortable when they're constantly commenting on her appearance, that they may be in fact, just, you know, 
appreciating her and not meaning it in a, you know, aggressive way or a violent way. Same thing. If you are saying something to a personal person of color and they take it as a harsh, violent statement or as a passive implication or a quote unquote microaggression, which by the way, they were saying this morning on CBC, there's some of the worst aggressions that you can do. They literally turn into a tsunami in the souls of people of color. We're not expecting people to change overnight. We expect slip ups after apologies and that's okay. But what we will not accept is justification of the behavior. Nobody on this panel will, none of our previous guests will, none of our future guests will. And I had a really good question yesterday. I think it was off the record of, do I say something to everybody or not, whether I think it's gonna make a difference or not? My answer to that was yes. Why? Because even if the person I am speaking to is a deer in the headlights, stupid, incapable of change, somebody's going to hear the conversation and decide that, you know what, I'm going to go on the winning team of humanity and stop this stupidity. And on that note, I thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Thank you again, Nikki, for sharing your story. Thank you so much for coming to the dark side. I'm kidding. For <laughs> No, but coming to the honest, you know, open, unapologetic, referred to by, you know, the self-proclaimed oppressed white people as the dark side. Um, you know, thank you for coming forward and being anti-racist, which is the most important thing. And as a mother, I feel you. I feel that fear. I feel that discomfort. As a woman who grew up here, I feel your pain. And I really, you know, I thank you for coming past all of that and coming forward with your experience and sharing your voice and sharing your face as a person who is, you know, going through this. Um, for our listeners, if you have a story to share, if you want to reach us, if you have a comment, if you want to say something wonderful to Nikki, we can also pass it along. You can reach us on our Facebook page. We can fight like cats if we have to New Brunswick. Or you can also email us at wcflcnb at gmail.com. So again, thank you so much for tuning into our show. Be kind to each other support one another and stand up for each other. Have a great day, everybody.